The first question I'll ask you today is, have you ever been in debt? Maybe someone's debt, like they did something nice to you or for you, and you felt like you had to repay them. We have a little phrase. I've said it several times around here. It's called a debtor's ethic, where someone does something nice for you, and you feel like you are placed into their debt, and you must do something nice for them in return. Being in debt to someone and repaying that debt. Have you ever been in debt? Maybe someone gave you a loan, your parents, a friend. Blakely, this last week had senior day for the team, and They basically gave all the team, all the seniors, there was 11 seniors on this squad, and so a couple girls took one senior each and had to go buy gifts for those seniors, and Blakely ended up buying uh, all the gifts for the two, two of these seniors, and she was wondering, fretting about, will she even get repaid? Like, we find ourselves in these places where we're in a debt, and sometimes that debt isn't repaid, or maybe we're someone who creates a debt and we aren't paid back. We can also be in debt to a bank um, or maybe something more nefarious like some other organization or group or person who is more threatening that in a crunch might give us a loan. We are in debt and that's where we're going to start this morning is to remember that all of us are in debt. Now Paul starts here in verse 12 in an emphatic way. He says, you might be in the flesh, still rummaging about in this realm. We talked about this last week. He says, you might still be rummaging about in the realm of the flesh, thinking that you are in debt to the flesh. But you, again, in the second person, y'all, are not in debt to the flesh. You are not obligated to it. And this is good news. Because the flesh, right, friends, has not done us any favors, It hasn't put us in a position to know God. What you have to remember is that living in the realm of the flesh, under your flesh, is anti. The flesh is always, always, always anti-God. Remember, the flesh is not your body. is isn't just physical things. It can be part of that. They can be part of living in the realm of the flesh, but that realm of the flesh, in no sense, no way, ever seeks to honor or please God. So the flesh has done you no favors, so you owe it nothing. Now, how many of us live otherwise, under feeling like we're under some sort of obligation to the flesh, like we owe it a debt, like the flesh starts calling to be satisfied, and you feel you have to answer it? If we try to live this way in debt to the realm of the flesh, Paul says over and over again, we are inviting death. Instead, he says, we are called to live a life by saying no to all the things in the realm of the flesh. Sometimes that is things our body demands, sometimes it's other things. But the rule of Christ and its moral obligations are actualized in us believers when we forsake our selfishness and our sinful nature and relinquish ourselves to the Spirit. What Paul is saying is saying no to the realm of the flesh, to those things, our bodies. Let me remind you here that our bodies have physical appetites. But not only that, they are the the things we think about. They're our emotional life. 
the demands our emotional life makes on us. Like it might feel good to retort to a person online or a coworker in anger, to exert your rights, to act out because you're sad or grumpy or tired. Like this is the realm we typically reside in. Our flesh becomes weak. And our flesh wants nothing to do with God. It wants to flex always for the self, that false self, that shadow self. And freedom is not simply doing what we want. That is a capitulation to the flesh. It's a capitulation to sin and death and slavery to sin. Freedom is the decision to act according to God's Spirit. And this leads us into verse 13. For if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. What Paul is saying is we're not in debt to the flesh, but rather we're in debt to the Spirit. And this debt is not like that debt. We are under obligation to live now as if we are in the Spirit. So why are we under obligation to the Spirit? Why are we in debt to the Spirit? Well, several points today, but first we're going to start because... By the Spirit, we can put to death the misdeeds of the body. By the Spirit, Paul says, we can say no to the flesh. We are to say no to the things which drag us down into the realm of the flesh. Now, I think Paul here is pointing us to the story of Israel. Remember, Israel clung to the old way, the way of Egypt, the way of slavery. This was the realm of the flesh. Here, when they experienced suffering or loss or lack, where they found their freedoms restricted, what did the people of Israel do? They grumbled. And we'll come more back to this more next week, but their grumblings came from a stomach of unbelief. Put to death here is in the present tense. This tense in Greek emphasizes a continuous action. It is, Paul is calling us to arms. It's a battle to mortify, to put to death our sin. And it's no momentary battle. It's not like one war and then it's over. It's a continual lifetime work. Now, many of our deeper desires won't leave us, and they might not ever change in our life. Again, this is the false self, the old man. It is the ways we are wired, the ways we try to protect ourselves from our fears and our pains. When we get anxious, when we feel this sense of self-protection or self-glorification or self-sufficiency rise up in our guts, when we grumble and complain to God, to one another, when we offload all those fears in gossip to someone else, seeking relief, this is what we are What the old man does, this is the realm of the flesh, that snide comment, that bickering about your mom or your dad with your siblings, the the gripe of a coveting heart that doesn't um, have what the neighbor has, this longing for things that we want, that things that we get to choose, the self-loathing and the shame that follows when we get those longings that disappoint us continually or when we fail and we give in to our misdeeds of our body and we can't do things right. These are the things that Paul is saying to us. We are not under obligation to obey, but we are under obligation in the Spirit to put to death. 
And because you have the Spirit, you can. That's the, the good news. Because by the Spirit, Paul says, you can put to death these misdeeds of the body, trying to wiggle ourselves back into the realm of the flesh, trying to go back to Egypt like the children of Israel. The Spirit of God's abiding presence is in you. As you live in this realm that demands your flesh be satisfied. Just like Israel. Now, God gave them a pillar of fire and smoke, a cloud of smoke. The point is God would make them arrive to the land that he had given them, to their inheritance. But now in the wilderness, the lure of the flesh is strong and must be resisted. We will be tempted in this place to give up, to go back to the place of slavery. But the Spirit has emancipated us and united us to the Son, and now we belong to Him. And when the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us, one of the first signs is we recognize that God is our Father. Now, this is what Paul was saying in chapter 5 when he says, the love of God is spread abroad in our hearts. We are not under obligation to the flesh, but to the Spirit, because, second point, by the Spirit, we are adopted into a family. In Paul's world, adoption usually occurred when a wealthy adult had no um, heir for his estate. He would then adopt someone as heir. It could be a child, it could be a youth, it could be an adult. And the moment adoption occurred, several things were immediate. Obligations were paid. Uh, he would, the, the adoptee would get a new name and instantly be an heir of all the things that the father had. He would also become liable for all his father's actions, his debts, his crimes. And the new son also had new obligations to honor and please his father. All of this lies behind the passage here. Here Paul emphasizes we are sons, children of God, and he uses these, uh, these terms four times in our passage. Who is a child of God? Paul says those who have the Spirit. The Spirit makes, marks us and tells us we belong to God. In baptism... That's one of the things we remember, we see in living color. A child, a baby, marked out as belonging to God. You have been set apart. You have been placed into the communion of saints, the church. You are marked out. You belong. It reminds me of this image from Toy Story where Buzz Lightyear is marked by Andy, he is brought into, out of the realm of being a toy with no owner, he is marked and brought into the realm of Andy. And what's one of the first things Andy does? He marks him and he puts his name on him. When someone is adopted, the final step of the process is a declaration in a public court where names are changed that you now belong to this family. In the law court of the universe, we all stand condemned. We're all in the dock. And is there where Jesus steps into the dock and receives our condemnation. And we receive pardon, freedom from all condemnation. 
And here also we receive a new name. The old name is gone. This new name is righteous. We are righteous, made righteous by a righteousness that isn't our own. How do we know? Because the legal court is also an adoption court. This court of the universe isn't just a legal court that declares guilt and innocence, freedom from slavery. It is an adoption court. As Kevin Van Hooser says, the same court that declares us innocent also declares that we are adopted and we belong to God's family. It isn't just an individual salvation we receive. We are adopted into a family, and our status is changed, and a new status is received. And so by the Spirit, we receive this spirit of adoption. And Paul makes note of this. Not a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Now let's, hear, now sit, let's sit here for a second. It's All Hallows' Eve, the day before Christian Memorial Day, All Saints' Day, the day where we remember that life is short and we all, like those who've gone before us, will die. So what are you afraid of? What do you fear? We walked down Old Messiah yesterday in Las Cruces and um, they had all this Day of the Dead tables set up around the square with all the, you know, the spectacle and art of Day of the Dead. But what was interesting is that there was these pictures of all the family members of these families who set up these tables who had gone before. What do you fear? Do you fear death? Do you fear um, rejection, loss? I want to give you a few illustrations here because I think Paul knows that fear is a primary way we all go back to the realm of the flesh. It's a way we don't live in the realm of the spirit. We go back to the realm of the flesh because we're afraid. I mean, Israel is afraid that they won't eat. They, they, in the desert, when they don't have any food, they start to dream of what they ate back as slaves in Egypt under their cruel master Pharaoh. What makes you shrink back in fear? What makes you long for the realm of the flesh where you can have relief and control and relieve your fears? In Japan, children account for only 2% of adoptions. The other 98% are males between the ages of 25 and 30. Why is this? This comes from the Freakonomics guys, but what happens when the heir of the family isn't up for the job, like when the child won't do what the father wants, what happens? Well, in Japan, it's adult adoption. These, adopt, these adults are called scions, and it's what makes companies perform. If you compare the performance under different kinds of heirs, blood heirs versus adopted heirs, the superior performance of a second-generation managed firms is pretty much entirely attributed to adoptable heirs. Rather than hand the firm over to Tommy, the Tommy boys of the world, the unworthy sons, let's hand it over to a worthy one, one who has earned it. Now, I want you to hear in this the echo of what we've been talking about through Romans, which is the way of giving gifts in the world. Remember, in Rome, gifts were given to those who deserved it. You wouldn't give a gift to anyone who didn't deserve the gift. There was the importance of being repaid in giving the gift or 
paying it forward. If someone couldn't do that, you wouldn't give them a gift. Adopting a scion is similar to this idea. The fear was that you will lose what you have gotten. The fear is that you will be found out. The fear is that you will be rejected, that you will never measure up, that your failures will disqualify you, the groaning suspicions uh, that your children will reject you, reject your faith, your way of life, the fear that your father will never love you, that your mother will always be disappointed in you, that, you're, that you will never make it, never overcome your dis- deficiencies, that fear that you won't be loved, that you will be replaced. Those are real fears that we live with that ache us, that we won't measure up, that someone else will be adopted into our place, someone that will do it the right way. Into that, Paul reminds us that by the Spirit, we have received adoption so that we won't fall back into these old fears. Led by the Spirit, Paul says, we are sons and daughters of God. And maybe that's what you need to hear this morning. Israel failed as a son. Much like the story of an adult adop- uh, the adult adoption in Japan. And the Gentile was brought in, an interloper to the Jew. How can this be? Because Jesus is the true son. God doesn't reject Israel. He doesn't leave the rest of the world alienated in slavery and of sin. Instead, God rectifies Israel's failure and the Gentiles' obliviousness to it and redeems both the older and the younger brother through the elder brother, his son, Jesus. Jesus is the true son that does what the original heir and the orphan could not do. This is why you and I are under obligation to the Spirit. Because led by the Spirit, Paul says, we are now sons and daughters of God. Before we didn't have a status, now we have a status. And so that leads to the next point. Let's skip that. Because by the Spirit, we can cry out, Daddy, to our God and our Father. Now, don't miss this. God isn't just benefactor. He isn't just new master, a better master, in fact. He isn't just father, even. He is daddy. This intimate term. Grace comes and relationships are changed. Speech acts are made. Things are declared, in other words. Orphans are made sons and daughters. Unworthy sons and daughters are made worthy. And the way we are to dress our Father is the most intimate way. It's the same way Jesus the Son addressed God his Father, Abba, Daddy. And the emphasis here is that there's no more absence but presence. Father hunger is a real thing in our world. This yearning for the presence and connection with Dad. Intimacy with your Father this could be because you lost your father. You, you could have been abandoned by your father. Your father might be around, but he's distant and isolated from relationships. Or your father might have been abusive. And what that's created in our culture is this father hunger. Dads matter. 
in a middle school event in Dallas, decided to hold a breakfast with dad event at the school. Teachers were worried that many of the 150 students who signed up for the breakfast would be without their fathers. So they took to Facebook and Twitter asking for 50 male volunteers to come in the stead for fatherless boys. And amazingly, 600 dads came to this event. Stephanie Dinka, who was there writing about it, says, I'll never forget witnessing the young students surrounded by supportive community members. There were many volunteers that at times I saw young men huddled in the center of four to five mentors. The look of awe, even disbelief in the students' eyes as they made their way through the crowd of dads was astonishing. Dads matter. Earlier this month, a story circulated about a Louisiana high school. 23 students had been arrested in the span of three days at this high school for fighting. Michael Lafitte's 16-year-old daughter was scared, afraid to go to school. Many others felt the same way. So Mike reached out to other dads at Southwood High, and they formed this thing called Dads on Duty. Their idea was to take shifts patrolling the campus every day. When asked why, Michael said, we're dads. Who's better to protect and take care of our kids than us? With dads around, the kids feel safe. You could just see the love. Now back to the question I ask you, what are you afraid of? When my kids cry out, daddy, in fear because of the dark or when afraid in a world of absences, when they cry, daddy, I come running. Deke was with my uh, parents and they were tooling around to Tanawan, they came to this really scary house. And he told me on the way to church this morning, he goes, Dad, I just wanted to cry for you. I had shivers. The house was giving me the shivers. Jesus will say to us, if wicked dads know how to give good gifts to children, how much more will our good father? You see, friends, we've been marked by the spirit that we belong to God. And so this same spirit says, you can cry out to your daddy when you're afraid. That your adoption as sons and daughters gives you access to the father in a way that's intimate and real. And so cry out to him. Instead of running in the realm of the flesh to find relief in your own ways and your own means, we are invited as God's children to pray, to find our Father in our fears and run to Him and cry out to Him. And He will hear us and answer us. So we don't have to go back to a slavery in fear. Instead, because we have the Spirit, we are indebted, obligated to run to our Father who hears us and will answer us. You've been marked out. You belong to God. And so Paul says in verse 16, this Spirit testifies with our spirit that we belong to God. The Spirit reminds us we have the Father, that He loves us, that He is present and not absent, that he will defend and protect you. And where do you receive assurance that you're a child of God? Where do you get it? Friends, how do you know you are 
God's child, that you can cry out daddy to him? What is the thing that gives you that assurance to do that, that you are a child of God? Often, mistakenly, I think we look to fruit. We, we look to fickle fruit. I have fruit trees in my yard, and they do produce fruit every season. But man, that fruit is fickle. I mean, some of the trees are better than others at producing it. Some of the fr- fruit that falls off the tree are more edible than others. Some of the branches have stopped producing fruit at all. Do we look to fruit, our fickle fruit, for our assurance? That, that is our tendency. Like, how do I know I'm a child of God? We start looking at the ways I've changed or the things I've done. But I don't think that's what Paul's after here. I think Paul is after us to look to Christ. There was a tweet that passed around this last week. When, I, when were you saved was the question. And the answer was AD 33. When were you saved? You were saved in AD 33 when Christ died and was raised. When the Spirit came to the church. It brings us back to this reality that you have been adopted in Christ. Where do you look for assurance? Look to Christ. The Spirit here is the testifier, not you, not your life, not your fruit. I've been listening to the Mars Hill podcast. So much was done in the name of looking at the fruit that the church produced. Fruit is fickle. And so much of the fruit, when fully formed, now looks rotted. Not all to be sure, but fruit isn't the place you should look. You should look to the voice of the Spirit. The voice of the Spirit says you belong to God. How do you know? Are you hearing the gospel? Are you trusting the gospel? What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I'm not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood, He has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Why? Because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of my eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. So part of this, this morning, is discerning the voices. What voices cause you to doubt that you belong to God? What are the things in the middle of the night that wake you up and cause you to doubt that you are a child of God, that you can cry out to your father, Daddy? What are they? And what do you do? You look to Christ. Calvin has this great, quote, I didn't put it on the screen, but I'm going to tell you it. He says, first, if we seek God's fatherly mercy and kindly heart, we should turn our eyes to Jesus, on whom God's Spirit rests. Now, don't miss this. How does the Spirit testify to our spirit that we are children of God? He is shyly pointing to Jesus, always pointing to Jesus. The Spirit rests on Christ, not on something we do that's magnanimous, but on Jesus the Christ. If we seek salvation, life, immortality of the heavenly kingdom, then there's no other way, no other to whom we may flee, Calvin says. Seeing that he alone is the fountain of life, the anchor of salvation, the heir of the kingdom of heaven, 
you shouldn't flee to anywhere else but to Christ. And that's what the Spirit does. The Spirit is constantly pointing to Jesus. So when you come to worship on a Sunday morning, the point, the thing you are to remember, the thing that the Spirit does and rests on you is to help you see Jesus. How do you know? How does the Spirit bear witness to your spirit that you are in fact a child of God? By taking you to Jesus over and over and over again. This is what Calvin says, Accordingly, those whom God has adopted as sons and daughters are said to to have been chosen not in themselves but in Christ. For unless he could love them in him, he could not honor them with the inheritance of his kingdom if they had not been previously become partakers of him. But if we have been chosen in him, we shall not find assurance of our election in ourselves, and not even God the Father, if we conceive him as severed from the Son. Christ then is the mirror wherein we must, without self-deception, where we may contemplate our election, that we are in fact saved in Christ. For since it is into his body the Father has destined those to be engrafted whom he has willed from eternity to be his own, that they may hold as sons all whom he acknowledges to be among his members. We have a sufficiently clear and firm testimony that we have been inscribed in the book of life if we are in communion with Jesus. See, the Spirit is the voice of truth, and he says, look to the Son for your assurance. And that also, by the way, is what you do if you are not in Christ. Where do you run? You run to Jesus. That's what the Spirit does. What does the Spirit say to us? That we are children of God. And the benefits of this sonship are what we've talked about this morning. The benefits of this sonship of being adopted and why we're in debt to the Spirit is because the Spirit gives us security. The Spirit gives us authority. The Spirit gives us intimacy. The Spirit gives us assurance. And this leads to verse 17. The, the Spirit gives us an inheritance. Because by the Spirit, we become like our Father in our guaranteed inheritance. By the Spirit, we are made heirs. Heirs have an inheritance. Inheritance of what? Of glory. Sin stole glory. And once the glory was stolen, creation has, was marred and tainted with sin and attempted to restore their own glory in and of themselves. Friends, that's what we do. When we shrink back to the realm of the flesh... We are attempting to find glory, comfort, life apart from God. But the Spirit convicts us of that sin, reminds us that there is a Savior who loves us, and that in Him there is a future that is promised and guaranteed by this same Son. How do we know it's a guarantee? Because Jesus died and was raised. He's called the first fruit. He's called the guarantee because we look to Christ and see he's conquered sin. He died for it on a cross, but he didn't stay dead. He was raised. And because he was raised, we know glory is to come. In the suffering of the Son, a doorway to glory 
is reopened. Our inheritance, which was uncertain or seemed uncertain, becomes certain. Now let's just sit here for a second because Paul adds this caveat, provided we suffer with him. A theology of glory versus a theology of cross. You see, right now, as we live life under the realm of the Spirit, in the realm of the flesh, as we live this life out, glory is not what's, what comes now, but cross. We, we want our inheritance now. Like prodigals, we're saying, God, like, like, can I just have a little bit of my inheritance now? Can I just have a, a little bit of my glory? Can I, can I have a little bit of ease, maybe a, a little bit of victory, maybe... Maybe a little bit more power. Can I, can, I, can I rule and have some authority? Maybe just a little bit more freedom. Now, there's a yes to this, but how does it come? It comes backwards. It comes by suffering. The way to sharing in our inheritance now is losing it now in faith and hope that it comes through this upside-down way. And because he owns a cattle on a thousand hills, and because the firstborn son has provided a way for us to be adopted into this new family, and because he, his name has been written in our legs and our hearts, and, and, and says now we belong to God, so our inheritance is sure. How do we know? The Spirit tells us and reminds us of the good news that it's a gift of grace and it's incongruous. So we don't have to prove it. Instead, we live as sure heirs. We have all that we need for us. In Christ. So we don't have to vindicate ourselves. We don't have to adopt ourselves. We don't have to make a name for ourselves or create our own identity. We don't have to make our own families. It's been given. We've been forgiven much. We're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses who the writer of Hebrews says obtained the hope that they had and then calls us to run a race of endurance. And that's how we live, how we live in hope so that we might endure as adopted and loved children, knowing that we can never be rejected, that the the name on our feet orientates us to a whole new world and a whole new future, not to repay, but to live out of this one-way permanent love that says you're special to God, and by special I mean loved, a love so powerful and strong and eternal that nothing you or I do can cause it to be withdrawn. This is why Sinclair Ferguson says the notion that we are children of God, his own sons and daughters, is the main spring of Christian living. Our sonship to God is the apex of creation and the goal of redemption. That's that's why we're in debt to the Spirit. Because the Spirit does all this in us. The Spirit enables us to, to pray to cry out, Daddy, to God. The Spirit enables us to put to death the misdeeds of the body. Friends, this morning, I know many of you are under the the weight of sin, and it feels so heavy. And you think you can never, ever be free of that weight. And yet, the Spirit says to us this morning that by the Spirit, we can put those things to death. We, We don't have to be indebted to those things Anymore, you have been set free from the shackles of sin to live to Christ. And one of the ways you do that, just like I said to the kids this morning, is to remember. To remember that this is true for you. That the Spirit does respond to you. 
as you pray, Daddy. The Spirit enables you in moments to mortify the flesh. For me, friends, I, when I'm tempted, I don't want to do that. I want to indulge. And so I ignore the way out and under given to me by God's Spirit because I want to sin. But if in that moment, instead, I said no to the flesh, which by the Spirit I am enabled to do, God provides a way out, a way of escape in Christ his Son by the Spirit. The Spirit enlivens you to the gospel, to the words, that you don't stop believing them. The Spirit assures you that you belong to God. The Spirit is a promissory note of what's to come. And the Spirit enables us to suffer like Jesus, our brother. So this morning, the call is to live as a debtor to the Spirit. How do you do that? Psalm 116, 12 to 13. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will take up the cup of salvation, the cup of the Spirit, and all the benefits, and I will, I will drink it to the dregs. And then I will cry out like a, a child cries out to their daddy, can I have some more? That's the posture of children. Needy, dependent, asking over and over and over again. Hey, hey, can I have some more? Tonight, candy time? When you spread all the candy out on the floor and you got five pieces, and they get to the end of that five pieces, can I have some more? That's how we should live, church. In debt to the Spirit, we cry out, can I have some more? Let's pray. God, we ask that you would help us to be uh, the church as we come to the table and ask you to fill the cup of salvation again for us, to fill our tummies again. This meal isn't substantial in the sense that it's a lot. But you call us to receive it with faith that the small portion of bread and wine is our deepest reality. That living water and living bread are ours. If we'll open up our hands and say, give me some more that our inheritance is a table spread before us in the presence of our enemies, our heads anointed with oil, flowing, running over cups, fullness, presence, not absence. So help us, God, to suffer, to take up our cross in these moments, just like the sun, and understand that that's the way that we will experience the fullness of your spirit in this life. And that this table is just a promissory note of that call and our future. Help us, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.